because where do we start? Where, do, where did Matthew begin? Anybody remember? What did he start with? Genealogy. And what were like the little like sore thumbs in the genealogy? Yeah, like outsider Gentiles. Like if you're trying to prove that this is the pure Messiah of the Jewish line, clearly in line with David and Abraham and stuff like that, why include every Gentile in the genealogy, particularly women Gentile, when you're telling a genealogy through the men, uh, to, to, to include that in the bloodline? But he goes out of the way to do so. Because Matthew is who? The person we encounter today. He's, he's a tax collector. And what are tax collectors? Yeah, I mean, they are the outsiders of the outsiders. They were rejected by their own people for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe their upbringing was harsh. We don't know their stories. Uh, we don't get a lot of that. But, um, but for whatever reason, they don't find a home amongst their people and are willing to sell out for a lot of reasons to the Romans. And then we encounter the birth stories and uh, an unwed mother and uh, a, a king in, in Herod who is looking to uh, basically kill all these babies, this pharaoh-like sort of storyline, and that they have to flee, the sort of impoverished messiah born in a lowly stable in a kind of a lowly town. Um, it, it's not meant to be the glitz and the glitter of the stories out of Rome or the stories of Herod or any of those sort of things. It's a um, sort of an unexpected story of the birth of a king. And then he comes back up out of Egypt and uh, he ends up uh, being at the, the Jordan River. And so you have all these sort of Israel tie-ins and he spends days and 40, uh, a time of 40 days as opposed to 40 years in the desert being tempted, being trialed. You have all these analogies, I think, that are coming out of the text. But he's speaking of this kingdom that he's coming to bring. He calls people to repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he spends three chapters, at least how we do chapter breaks, teaching. And he starts with blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you because you're persecuted. Blessed are those who are lowly in, or um, have no spirit, or lack spirit, or hunger and thirst for righteousness, which means they're lacking righteousness. They, they hunger for it. There's something missing in them about righteousness. It's not who everybody expects. And then he teaches about his kingdom that's completely upside down from the world's norms about power and position and what blessing means versus what cursing means. And he teaches people to love their neighbor. He, he teaches us to, to go the extra mile, even if it's a real struggle for the sacrifice for somebody else. He, he teaches all these really important aspects of how his kingdom is just distinct from how we would expect things. And then he goes on to heal what people didn't expect Jesus to interact with. The Messiah is supposed to come and reset Israel, not supposed to come and heal a centurion's servant. It's not supposed to come and start interacting pretty much with all sort of the outsiders, those unclean folks who can never really worship with us because they're the outsiders. He should set up shop and be the religious leader. If he's God's presence on earth, he should be the cleanest. Why is he going to the unclean? He crosses over the lake and goes to the capitalist, which is like, to a Jewish person, the unclean of the unclean. Like the, 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 the pagans who are farming pigs, of all things. He's hearing para, healing paralytics, which is the last story we encountered before we took our break from Matthew. 
And this teaching, even in that, that the Son of Man has come to forgive sins. The Son of Man, that uh, there was so much um, sort of thought and debate in the first century in Second Temple Judaism of who this Son of Man is. Is he like Abel? Is he coming for vengeance against the sins of his brother or against really sin in general? The picture from Daniel of him kind of coming, the Ancient of Days, coming to the Ancient of Days, and it's going to be when finally things are finally right. Romans are kicked out, everything is purified, and we're ready to go. And I think they're shocked when Jesus goes, the Son of Man has come to forgive. And it's upside down. It's not what they were expecting. Instead of vengeance, they're seeing mercy, and it's throwing them for a loop. And so it's a reminder, I would argue, as Matthew is progressing, because Matthew is the outsider writing to his brothers and sisters, his, his predominantly Jewish brothers and sisters, going, this is what the kingdom of God is actually about. And we, we missed it. And I know because I was the outsider about the mercy and forgiving work of Jesus. And I think the theme continues to this day. And we get two scenes to do that with. Starting in verse 9, as Jesus passed out on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, we don't know how complex this moment is. We don't know whether Jesus and Matthew had had interactions before this moment or not. Um, sometimes because we don't have the backstory, we just assume Jesus walked up to this total stranger and said, follow me, and Matthew did. We don't, we don't know if that's true or not. But we do know Matthew, at some point, he says yes, and, and decides to follow Jesus for whatever reason. He, he's saying, yes, I want to follow this rabbi. Now, what sort of friends is Matthew probably going to have? Yeah, more tax collectors. So they're probably going to talk about the best practices and methods to collect more money. So he's got some friends there, business friends. Who else? Romans, yeah. He's probably got some Romans uh, that are probably uh, acquaintances of him because he's collecting money for them. They're probably fine with that. Wealthy people, sure, yeah. He's probably got some connections there. Though if you're a Jewish wealthy person, you're probably not so interested in hanging out with Matthew. And then, at some point, he has been excluded from the religious practice and life of the community. And so it's likely that he is probably connected with that collection of people as well. Um, people that have also been excluded from the worshiping community because there's no community to be found. He can't find a lot of community amongst his own brethren of, of Jewish people in Capernaum in that area. So it's likely that he has made acquaintances with various other people perhaps prostitutes, perhaps tax collectors, perhaps Romans, all these sort of different people. Sinners would encompass a whole collection of options. So what happens? Jesus reclined at table in the house, and yes, we do know from the other gospel writers that the house that he does recline at is Matthew's house in the storyline. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners come and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Because I wonder if Matthew at some point is like, hey, Jesus, like, if I follow you, is this for everybody else too? Like, Jesus, can I throw a party and invite other people, like other friends? They would love to meet you. And I'm sure Jesus is like, yeah, sure, let's do this. And they have a party. They have a, they have a dinner together. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, in a very honor-shame hospitality culture, what does a meal communicate? Like, not just showing hospitality. I think they were all called to show hospitality even to the outsider. But to actually sit and dine with somebody, what does it communicate? What was that? 
Yeah. It could communicate in some ways sort of acceptance. At least it communicates that you and I are in an okay relationship. We are not currently enemies at this moment, that there's, there's something right about our relationship with each other. And if a religious leader does that, what do you think the question's going to be? Do you condone what they're doing? Do you condone tax collecting? Do you condone Roman centurions? Do you condone maybe prostitution or things like that? And just so you know, Jesus constantly is stirring controversy by who he sits down with or who is present at the table or who is anointing his feet at the table, whatever it may be. He's constantly has these moments, these characters in the story. And so it becomes a question, even a sort of practical, though I don't think it's the thrust of the text, but a really important practical question of who would we sit down with? Like, who wouldn't we give our time to or avoid? And we don't get a clear picture of the faith of these characters. We don't know what Matthew's friends believe or don't believe about Jesus in this moment, but Jesus is sitting down with this crowd. Is it someone in a MAGA hat? Is it someone with a Stacey Abrams sign in their yard? Someone who identifies with a letter within the LGBTQIA acronym? Someone who just got out of prison? Someone who's struggling with addiction right now? Because I can imagine, man, Jesus' crowd that he's dining with is probably made up of some of us. Who might it be? And I want to be careful about painting the Pharisees in these stories always as this, sort of this one-dimensional villain uh, in the story. I, I think there's a few folks down in Jerusalem that are probably a little more one-dimensional villains, but I, I don't know if the Pharisees are that. Because at some point, this was a movement that, that was birthed out of the fact that they ended up in Babylon. And they, they sort of reflected on their time in Babylon. It's sort of the birth of the, of, of the synagogues and the Pharisee movement of saying, look, like we're here because we weren't obedient. We, we want to be obedient to the text as best we can. We will, we will set up every rule to make sure we are as obedient to the text as we possibly can. And it's a movement that kind of started going bad because in all their fencing and all their rulemaking, they sort of pushed certain people to the sidelines, kept them away from fellowship with the Lord, kept them out of community, and, and became more harsh, more black and white about their understanding of things. The letter of the law. And it's how many of them viewed God, that he was a God that was interested in the letter of the law, very interested in the rules and the regulations and the blacks and the whites of faith. And then Jesus comes along, and their response to him seems like, well, that's, that's just not how it operates. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is not okay. And we're about to see why they just have really a problem with him. Verse 12, and when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, as I said, Jesus was willing to eat with the outsiders, the sinners, those who couldn't be counted amongst the righteous at the time. And they have a problem with it, and Jesus says, look, you know why I'm hanging out with these folks? It's because they're sick. I'm, I'm a doctor. That's, that's what I'm here for. And if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. If you're well, you don't need a physician. But I'm a doctor and I'm here for the sick. Now, you guys are all about the Bible. So, read Hosea 6 and go study that a little bit more. And so we get. And Jesus quotes Hosea 6. And he will do it again, actually, in a few chapters. 
It's one of the only times, actually, Jesus repeats a quote in Scripture. And and he talks about observing the Sabbath, and he quotes uh, Hosea 6. So the Gospel writers don't record Jesus quoting text repeatedly very often. So obviously, Jesus, something about Hosea 6 seems important enough to repeat. And we only get one line, but remember, verse numbers didn't exist in their time. That's a very much later addition to the Bible. Um, And so it can be very much argued that when a quote happens, uh, particularly in the Gospels, um, it's meant to encompass the context of that whole section of text. Uh, That'll come up tons and tons of times throughout Matthew. So whatever Hosea is talking about in the context of this one line should be applied. And Hosea is an interesting choice because Hosea, in in the context of the story of Hosea 6, the people um, in in the previous story, the context of that story, the the Pharisees wanting vengeance, wanting justice, wanting God to judge uh, ultimately um, the people as opposed to show mercy and forgiveness. Hosea is actually a text that's like, do you remember why I'm judging you? You sure? Sure you want that? Because I'm judging you because you didn't listen to me. Because I don't want empty piety in, in, in religious obedience. I want mercy. Like, I'm judging you because you didn't, weren't merciful to bless the nations. Like, instead of blessed to be a blessing, you, you guys are trying to show yourself through empty piety and sacrifice. I want mercy and justice and righteousness. That's what I want out of my people. And Jesus is quoting this. And at some point, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, like to quote scripture too, but in some ways they use it as a, as a weapon more than healing. And scripture can either be used as a weapon or as medicine. Like Paul will even state that the letter of scripture, without the spirit, it can kill. And I think for too many of us, we've experienced this. Ways we've been wounded by the way the Bible has been used against us. Maybe shamed for sin instead of invited into a better way. Or forced to submit to unhealthy leadership and using scripture to defend that. Required to follow rules and not be invited into a sense of love, a love of God and a love of people. Used to prove that you're not saved or used to prove that you're saved but other people aren't however it might have been weaponized. But here, Jesus gives us this like interpretive tool. Like, it's the word of God, Jesus, interpreting the word of God for us, how to handle the word of God. And then we, hear me, we all emphasize certain parts of scripture. We just all do it. We all have our own interpretive keys. We all cherry pick in some ways the scriptures that are more important than others. And too often we read the Bible based upon our own convictions, not, sh- not desiring to be shaped by God's image. It's just a matter of whether we admit it or not that we do those things. But we can at least look to Jesus because he will say, here's the weightier things. When he looks at the law, he goes, here's the weightier pieces of scripture. Or when he comes here, he's like, you want to know how to actually interpret how to actually play out your theology, here's how to do that. Let me give you Hosea. So before I open Paul or Peter or a commentary or whoever my favorite theologian is at this given moment, it's a question of going, what does Jesus emphasize? 
When he teaches, what does he emphasize? And time and again, through the Gospels, the top of Jesus' emphasis of how to interpret Scripture is not that it's about rules or ritual. It's not about predestination or sovereignty. It's not about tongues or the prophetic word of the followers. It's not even about instructions of how to be a church. It is mercy and love, time and time again. Jesus connects mercy with the work of being a physician. He says, why do I keep this company? Because they're sick. They need a doctor. And I need to treat them with the medicine of mercy. I think this also should make us rethink how sometimes we think about sin. I think particularly coming out of the Reformation, we tend to think of sin at times as sort of like this legal guilt in a law court. That that's sin. You're guilty. You need that the verdict on your life is guilt and you need a really good lawyer. But sin here is presented more as a disease that's infected the human race. And we all experience infection in some way, shape, or form. If this disease is not brought to the appropriate doctor, that it has a terminal diagnosis to it. And it has all sorts of symptoms that play out in a lot of different ways in different people's lives, but we all share the same disease. And hear me, a good lawyer can win your case in court, but... You're still who you are, right? It changes your status, but it doesn't actually change you. But Jesus is a physician, not a lawyer. He's never actually presented as a lawyer. Jesus is like, I don't don't want to just treat your case. I want to treat you. I want to make you well. And the beauty is, despite our experiences in life, there's no deductible. It's fully covered. There's no coinsurance. Jesus brings us freely to his people. And the only part we play in the whole thing is going, yes, I'm sick and I need help. I'm a sinner and I need to be made well. And it changes some of the viewing. Because Jesus isn't sitting here and going, all these people are bad. He looks at them and says, all these people are sick and need help. And you would sit there and say, I concur with the diagnosis and I need Jesus to heal. And we don't have to pretend we don't have sin. How ridiculous to go to a hospital and start filling out the paperwork. It's like, what symptoms do you have today? None. I'm just here for fun, to hang out at the hospital. But too often, I think we do that in church. We show up and we're like, good. It's like, what? then why are you here? We're here because we're sick and we need healing. We, we, we need that. It's what Jeremiah cries out for. It's what the the African spiritual goes, that there's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And the forgiveness and mercy that Jesus offers through his life, death, and resurrection. And we'll get better, and one day we'll be made fully well, probably on the other side of eternity, but we have mercy as medicine. So the wonderful prayer of the the sinner to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, that's, that's filling our prescription every time. It's getting the medicine we need by going to God and receiving his mercy in the face of our sin. In verse 14, the disciples of John came to him, so we kind of get a little bit of a shift of the crowd, the audience of who's speaking, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to him, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
Now, this is a unique picture, uh, bridegroom and bride, and the separating of them is an actual Old Testament image that happens multiple times. And probably the one that happens the most, if you were to like Bible Gateway it, whatever tools you might use, is out of Jeremiah. It's actually repeated multiple times throughout Jeremiah of the taking away of the bridegroom from the bride. And I mentioned Jeremiah a moment ago, but the book will come up a few times in these passages. And remember, Jeremiah spends most of his book telling the people, hey, like if we don't change, destruction is coming. Like if we don't start understanding what God actually wants, destruction is coming. And so perhaps Jesus is bringing up Jeremiah saying, look, there's coming a day. Destruction is probably going to be coming again unless things change. And right now it's like Jeremiah's time. And there's a week come, a time to fast, when joy is really taken away from Israel, when bride and bridegroom are separated, when all of these things, but it's not right now. Right now, you have the bridegroom with you. And Jesus, he's here. God is present. The bridegroom, his bride, his people. And so what I think is Jesus is ultimately saying is, while I'm here, it's time to celebrate. What I'm doing, what I'm bringing is a celebration. And I'm here in the flesh. Let's celebrate. And he keeps going. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away and the garment is worse. The worst tear is made. Now there are new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. A new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Cryptic teaching, right? Except once again, where do you think this reference might come from? Jeremiah. Great. We even have a chapter where he talks about um, an old uh, piece of garment that's meant to look old and God saying, this is what you dislike right now, and then um, about bursting wineskins, like both right back to back in Jeremiah 13. So what is Jesus actually doing here then? I think Jesus is pointing out that what he is doing, what he is bringing, how he's um, interpreting is different than the old wineskins that have decayed over time. That the old wine is perfectly good. And, and likely the old teaching, the Torah, something wrong with it. I don't think he's saying that actually some of the old wine is some of the best wine. But those old wineskins aren't useful anymore. They don't have a future use. We can't reuse them. We can't repackage them. We can't pour out what Jesus is bringing in this new covenant where he's going to be taking the temple away, where he's going to be bringing his presence to an unclean world and making it clean, where he's going to be inviting in all these people that at times the instructions were they can't worship within the temple grounds. There's some newness of what Jesus is doing. And I think he's saying we can't force those new ideas into the old worldviews that people are operating out. The old ways that people are understanding the world. If, if you're John the Baptist's disciples whose philosophy on life is that everyone else is going to hell in a handbasket, or we're the only ones that really have it right, if, he, if John the Baptist is part of particularly the Essene movement, and we're ready for the Messiah to turn to straighten out everybody's lives. That was their review. Or the Pharisees, who lived to the letter of the law, of what is essential, even if it leads to all sorts of people being left out of the story of God, because if we're not obedient to the letter of the law, things are never going to get better. Or maybe it's sort of Christian nationalism. Thinking that the U.S. is a paradigm for modern Israel and equating political power with the work of the kingdom and seeking to utilize law and force as opposed to discipleship as a means to expand. There's more talk about what we're against than what we're for. Or perhaps legalism in the Christian world, though we would never use that term for ourselves, but to think that showing up at Sunday 
participating in just the religious practices of the church. That's enough. That's what God requires of me. Or perhaps the bubble Christian, where we're so insulated from the world that all of our friends act like us, look like us, think like us, talk like us. The podcasts that we listen to just reinforce our preconceived theological dispositions. The books we read do the same thing. We, whatever it is, we just stay in sort of this bubble of our specific worldview and culture and are never challenged by other views. And then Jesus comes along and starts speaking of forgiveness and enemy love, healing the unclean and the Roman oppressors, sitting at tables with tax collectors, curing demon-possessed Gentiles, and creating this inclusive community that Jesus is creating. And he centralizes mercy of what it means to follow Yahweh more than anything else. And these ideas are not going to fit into the old systems of understanding the world. And they're not going to fit into some of the new systems that are now old that we have built as well. It's new wine. It's just not going to work in old wineskins. And the incorporation with Jeremiah just comes as a warning to the listeners saying, look, like this is what God is doing. And if we miss out on what God is doing, it may not turn out very well. Jesus will speak later in Matthew about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. And I think it's coming with that warning. So some, a couple take-homes. Um, my, my worry is that we hear this and too often still feel pretty comfortable in old wineskins. And out of really good intentions, out of, just like the Pharisees, just like John the Baptist's disciples, the, the whole crowd, out of good intentions to focus on obedience and sin and repentance, all these really important pieces of what it does mean to follow God, that we miss out on the very thing that Jesus actually came to bring. And we end up as not Pharisaic Jews, but Pharisaic Christians in some ways. That of a zeal for God, we genuinely want to follow what Scripture has, but perhaps we need to go back and read Hosea 6. We need to read Micah. We need to read Jeremiah and see what is the heart. And we need to go back to the Gospels, as opposed to sometimes jumping to Paul, and go, what is Jesus' heart? If God is walking around in the flesh, what is the heart of God in that person? Because you know what is really simple? Black and white. Black and white is simple. It's easy to control. It's clear lines. Right? Do not work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? How gray is that? Well, how about this? No work. Like, if you do exert any physical force, that's work. Great. And the Pharisees boxed it. Made it black and white and as clear as possible. And the Pharisees loved control, and we love control too. It's clear and delineated. Inside, outside. Righteous, a sinner. Clean, unclean. And what happens when Jesus shows up? Well, the unclean suddenly become clean. And the outsiders get seats at the table. And Jesus declares blessing on those who are lacking spirit and meek. He heals the Gentiles and announces forgiveness of the sins of a paralytic who says nothing in the story. And what happens to those in the old wineskins? They lose their minds. <laughs> or progressive liberal Jesus. And may I suggest that perhaps this is where we are at as a church right now, just to be honest. We're in a weird spot. I think there's a sifting happening, certainly, in the church in America. I think the last seven years or so has brought a lot to the forefront, and for all sorts of reasons. There's a lot of worldviews and ideologies at play, and there's a working towards 
a reprioritization of theology and church and everything else. Whether it's Christian nationalism, Christian progressivism, Christian fundamentalism, Christian feminism, Christian whatever movement you want to throw in there. And in the midst of all those movements where we hear the words of Jesus, who says, you know what? You know what's central to me? Mercy. You know what the weightiest things of the law are? Mercy, compassion, justice. Jesus, who in answering the greatest commandment question, says what every rabbi should, which is love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You read the old rabbis around Jesus' time, they answer it the same way. They answer it with that. And the next one is usually like the interpretive question of how they saw the rest of the teaching. And you had people say, obedience to the law, you got to obey the Sabbath, you got to do all these things. And Jesus goes, you know what the the interpretive rest of the the, the catch-all is? Go love your neighbor. That's the Jesus we follow. And if we see the old mode of operation in this world, and we see it in the secular world, we see the institution of the church, and a lot of us are sitting here and it feels so lacking. We sit and look at the church for the last seven years and we're like, man, something's missing. I agree with you. And we're at a church, I hope, that goes, you know what? We should feel comfortable coming in going, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm sick, and I need a physician. We're not fully progressive where everything goes and God affirms everything you do. No, like we have sin and we need a physician. But we are also not in another world where what is central are rules and regulations and not mercy and justice and compassion. I find it interesting also in Jeremiah of, of how Jeremiah will speak to how we know God Jeremiah will say this, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him wages, who said, I will build myself a great house and spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it in vermilion. And he's speaking to the king. He says, Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Because you have wealth and a beautiful home and all this. And he speaks to his father. He says, Did not your father eat and drink, and do justice and righteousness. Then it went well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. This, then it went, was well. And then he says this, Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. And Jeremiah is saying, you want to know the Lord? It's not a theological system. It's not a certain understanding of profession of faith or a creed. It's to know its heartbeat, which I would argue today is mercy, justice, compassion. And perhaps it's a moment to really assess where we are in the story. How much are we going to build a church of Pharisees where we draw a lot of lines? Or a church of John the Baptist's disciples who have a tremendous amount of zeal but at exclusion of others? and emphasize the wrong things? And are we willing to lay down the ways we interpret Jesus and filter his words? And we all do it in some ways, but perhaps see Jesus, perhaps we're filtering it through Paul. Whatever Paul says, we're going to filter all of Jesus' words through that. Or perhaps we read it through Joshua and winning the battles and all that. We're going to read Jesus through that. Or read Jesus through our favorite theologian who emphasizes 
whatever system and lay that system on top of Jesus? Or will we just let Jesus emphasize what Jesus wants to emphasize? And be really cautious not to start overlaying everything else on top. That's my hope. And as we continue in Matthew, it's not going to change a lot from that. (laughs) Matthew has a, a goal, an agenda to tell the story of Jesus. And it's a lot of this. And don't think it's just Matthew. You read the book of Luke, it's a lot of this. And will we be mobilized for this? Will we be a church? Our staff talked about this week. Will we be a church where the noises... I knew it would get me. Um, Will we be a church where the noises of a disabled community is just as welcome as the noises of babies? A church where we can ignore the odor of a man who probably hasn't showered in weeks, care enough for him to to find a way or to offer our homes or a shower outside, whatever it may be, and to love and not feel like it's an inconvenience. Just out of sheer hospitality, we want to show mercy. We beat a place that navigates the gray messiness of people that walk in here. And maybe they're holding hands with someone we don't think they should hold hands with. And will we show mercy? Will we dine with them? I'll tell you who would. Jesus. If we're not willing to go to the places that Jesus is willing to go to, I don't think we're picking up our cross and following him. Will that mark us? as a church, while still standing for things like repentance and faith and turning from sinful ways and following Jesus and all that he has for us. Yes, I'm for those things, but not at an underemphasis of his mercy and compassion. And this is going to make some of us uncomfortable. It's going to challenge some of our worldviews. But this is new wine for new wineskins. Let me pray for us, and we'll take communion. God, uh, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way it challenges. 2,000 years later, stories of things on the ground in North Israel can still speak, still shape us, shape what we prioritize, shape who we love and care about, shape things according to your kingdom. God, may we be kingdom people. May we be people who don't look to the world to get our definitions of what is important and vital and who to value or anything like that, but look to you. To be faithful citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. Help us to love our enemy and in so doing, love our neighbor. We love you, God. Amen. And the central piece of it all is a God who came into this world and sat down at a table full of sinners. (laughs) I mean, those disciples were a mess. They just were. 
And even sitting down at the table, they were probably like, oh, we don't get any of this, Jesus. We don't understand what's happening tomorrow. And some of them are going to deny him. Some of them are going to, well, at least one of them is going to betray him. They're still going to doubt even when he floats up into the air. <laughs> but the table is a story of mercy, of invitation. That's why we don't do a lot of fencing here, because the table is the invitation to Jesus. 